Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. People have all kinds of reasons, none of them good, for opposing liberalism. Recently, among intellectuals on the right, we've seen the reemergence of a particular religious anti-liberalism that goes by the term integralism. It most often comes in a Catholic flavor, but you can find versions of it across pretty much every religious faith. Kevin Ballier, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University, has a new book out that's the first to offer a thorough explanation and sustained critique of this new integralist ideology. It's called All the Kingdoms of the World, and it's my pleasure to bring Kevin on the show to talk about why so many religious intellectuals are attacking liberalism from within a religious framework and why they're wrong to do so. Let me very briefly mention that Reimagining Liberty is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy these discussions and want to get early access to new episodes, you can become a supporter by heading to reimaginingliberty.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Kevin Vallier. To the extent that this is possible after you have just written a whole book on the topic, can you give us the thumbnail sketch of what integralism is? Sure. Um, so first of all, you know, you've got to sort of take Catholic integralism for granted or Catholic, sorry, Catholicism for granted. Um, so you, you know, just understand this is going to be sort of in Catholic terms. Okay. So the, there's three conditions. Um, the first um, is a very common position historically, which is that God ordains the secular that is non-religious power uh, to govern, um, uh, to promote the common good of the human community. Okay. Pretty standard. The second condition is also not uncommon, which is that God appoints the church to govern the sort of eternal common good or the spiritual common good of the baptized members of that community and, of course, preach the gospel and try to convert the unbaptized members. Okay. Too, too fine. It's a third condition that's complex and kind of hard to understand. The integralists reason in the following way. They say, okay, there are all these ways that church and state could be related, but they're both ordained by God. They're both fundamentally good. Um, and so in cases of conflict, um, how do we divide up which does what? And here's their basic view. This was articulated um, in detail historically, particularly in the 17th century uh, by Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. Um, and it's the idea that the Pope and his bishops have what's called an indirect power or indirect sovereignty over the state. So the states, you know, can it has its own agricultural policy, its own healthcare policy, right? Builds its own roads. Those are its divinely granted mandates. But if what it does starts to directly infringe on the church, the church can, you know, get the state to sort of serve its purposes, to make its jurisdiction available for spiritual means. So that would include things like communications policies. So there could be restrictions on heretical books, um, the punishment of heretics, apostates. If someone's convicted of a crime within the sort of religious legal code, that is the canon law, um, and they don't repent or whatever, um, they can be handed over to the secular arm for severe punishment. It's also important to understand that this goes beyond what conservative Catholics typically want. Conservative Catholics will tell you, we're not trying to force people to have religious goals. We're just imposing natural law. So all of their arguments for like banning abortion, banning, banning same-sex marriage, that's all supposed to be based on reason itself. Integralism is going a step further. They're saying, we're going to integrate the church and the state in such a way that the church can basically dictate or direct spiritual policy by the state. So it's just a whole nother level 
Um, it's not your ordinary Catholic view at all. Um, so it's that indirect sovereignty. And the way the integralists defended it is they just say, look, there's two parts of the common good, temporal and eternal. Which one's more important? The eternal. The state has a nobler end. And so here comes a fallacy. The state should have sovereignty over. Uh, the church should have sovereignty of the state because its end is nobler. Very few Catholics accept that line of reasoning today, but that's the line of reasoning. There's a lot to unpack there, but let me ask quickly about you. You started by saying you kind of a lot of that you have to assume the truth of Catholicism is is baked in, and so I want to address that objection up front because that's the you know like so I like. You might disagree with this. Like listeners, some of the listeners might disagree, but like I'm fairly well convinced that Catholicism isn't true. And so for me, that's the immediate like, guys, your argument doesn't even get off the ground because this thing isn't true. And that's going to be the case for any particular, you know, if you're a Muslim integralist, people can say, I'm pretty sure Islam's not true. Or if you're a Buddhist integralist, they can say, I'm pretty sure Buddhism's not true. And there aren't that many Buddhist integralist because it's weird. And I also I it was yeah. interesting. I had come across you'd written your definition of religion. Um and by that, like I don't I don't think of Buddhism as a religion uh for, for a lot of reasons. But bracket bracket all of that because that's not our topic for today. Uh, how do how does an integralist respond to that kind of argument given that in most places, like in the US Catholics are in a minority. So most people think that Catholicism is not the one true faith or they would be Catholics. So is that a genuine concern? Yeah. I mean, it, so even within Catholic circles, integralism is is, is rejected. Um, it's the reason I was interested in it is because it's sort of taking shape among younger Catholics. So there's a couple of reasons to, I think, address integralism beyond the question of Catholicism's truth or falsity. But I will say that integralism was only really possible after there was an apologetic army in favor of Catholicism um, in, you know, like U.S. philosophy, um, you know, in seminaries and so on. Um, a lot of this modern apologetic was initiated by Pope Leo XIII about 150 years ago in reviving Aquinas. And so you get all of these kind of really hardcore apologists making Thomistic arguments for God's existence, arguing then against, you know, for Christianity, then arguing against Protestantism. So they, they do have arguments. Now, I know, you know, from your background and commitments, um, you know, most of that's going to be a non-starter. Um, but um, for a number of people, it, it, it would be. Um, so they have arguments. Um, they may not be successful, but they have arguments. Another reason um, I think to care about this is just that, you know, Catholics have like a huge amount of influence in elite American politics. I mean, we have Catholic president. Till recently, we had a Catholic speaker of the House. Five of the Supreme Court justices are Catholic. Uh, if you told an American that 120 years ago, they would, or 100 years ago, they would not have believed you. Um, and on the right, Catholics have been influential for 70 years. William F. Buckley was Catholic. Uh, Russell, Kirk was ca Russell Kirk was Catholic. Um, you also have the influence in literary circles. Tolkien was Catholic, right? Very traditional Catholic. Um, so you have these Catholic influences at the head of the American right, intellectual right. And those differences matter. You know, I mean, Gorsuch was a John Finnis student. Okay, and Finnis is one of the leading Catholic moral philosophers, maybe the leading Catholic moral philosopher in the world. Um, so if you want to understand a lot of where people are coming from ideologically, including in Supreme Court opinions, even if Catholicism doesn't come up, there's oftentimes a kind of Catholic background about objective morality, natural law, and so on and so forth. 
So because of Catholic influence, um, it's important to understand these doctrines, whether they're successful from the inside, simply because they're going to affect our lives. Um, the direction of American Catholic political thought in this country will affect you and it will affect me in time and already has. How new then is this, what we're now calling integralism? Uh, because, I mean, obviously the Catholic Church throughout its history has been involved in government and governance, um, sometimes to a much greater extent, sometimes to a lesser extent, but but Catholicism in politics is not new. So what is what is new about this current wave that you are writing this book in response to? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the book, you know, tries to develop a framework for addressing other anti-liberalisms as well. But yeah, it is primarily focused on integralism as my test case. So let me speak to this. Um, what I do in chapter two is outline a lot of detail that actually there's a lot of historical precedent for integralism in Catholic uh, history and Catholic theolo theological practice, particularly in the medieval period. Um, I work. I, I draw here a lot on Mark Koyama's account of kind of economic history of, of persecution and church control. And here's kind of roughly how it develops historically. And then I'll, I'll show you how the dogma, I think, evolved out of the history. So, you know, the, the Western Roman Empire collapses. The Eastern does not. Um, and those differences still track, say, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy even today. So the Western Empire collapses and the Catholic Church expands to uh, take over a lot of state capacity um, in terms of, you know, legal services, welfare services. You know, dioceses are originally Roman imperial designations, Pontifex Maximus, originally named Caesar. Um, and, and so you've got these very weak states and sometimes really no state at all, but you have the church. Um, and so, you know, a lot of Catholic theologians walk around and say, oh, there's something providential about this. It might, must be the case that the Pope has some kind of political authority, essentially kind of reifying their, their practice. Um, but what happens, you know, as you get to the high Middle Ages is some states are starting to coalesce, particularly the French state. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is that Catholics don't start burning heretics really until like the, the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. They learn it from kings, actually. Um, and, and Mark, you know, asks um, in his book on religion and persecution toleration, well, why did they start so late? Like, what's going on? Well, his argument is that effectively you get a kind of equality of power between the church, political power between the church and these rising states. And so they engage in policy bargains. So St. Louis will carry out religious policy like he burns 20,000 Talmuds. This is, you know, this is early 13th century, um, mid 13th century in France. Um, he's King Louis IX of France. Um but then they'll legitimize his reign, let's say, saying, oh, God's behind him or whatever. So you have this kind of bargain. But then once the states get more powerful, they just ignore the Pope, um, even if they're Catholic or they just subordinate uh, his influence. So like the Spanish crown carried out the Inquisition. It wasn't it wasn't the Catholic Church didn't run the run the thing. Um, and then once you have Protestantism, they'll just say, yeah, we're, you know, you're the, the Pope's Antichrist. So, you know, we're done. We're done entirely. So. What you get is several centuries where integralism is kind of the ideal. Things don't always work that way because you still have the kings telling the pope, you and what army, right? And the answer in that case is, I have one army. Um, <laughs> but so you have hundreds of years, including in Aquinas, where people are looking at this arrangement and saying, well, here's some arguments for it. Here's why it's a good one. And, and that starts to extend really from the 11th century until down into the Counter-Reformation. So you've got you know, roughly like at least 500 years of history where integralism is kind of the political ideal in the church. Um, 
And so, you know, this really matters historically because when the new integralism got off the ground, particularly starting, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they could draw on all this rich intellectual history. They could draw on the history, right? The church did a lot of this stuff and they could draw on the theology and look, look, Aquinas even seems to have supported this stuff. Um, and his little book on kingship, De Regno, if you read it in isolation from the Summa. So, you know, you've got all of these figures, all of these really important, influential uh, theologians and philosophers um, that, that favor these arrangements. Um, and so, you know, you, you, they can draw on this kind of sophisticated arguments here to say, you know, look, I mean, the church was seeming to defend this position even with the 19th century popes. And there's even a case to be made that Pope Pius X, whose pontificate ended in 1914, was an integralist. Um, and so, you know, this this view being sort of popular or at least supported or minority view extends into the 20th century. Now, of course, there are a variety of changes in the 20th century that made integralism like completely verboten, totally outside of things because of the Second Vatican Council. So, you know, once after the council, basically the remaining integralists can mostly go, fit, um, figure into a splinter group, um, the Society of St. Pius X, SSPX. Um, and it was so it was considered a total outlier view, even heretical. Uh, for decades. Uh, and then, you know, we could start to tell the story of where the new movement came from. But that's the arc, right? That's the that's the big story about why integralist arrangements developed institutionally in terms of economic history and why people looked around at those arrangements and said they're pretty good. That's a story, I guess, internal to Catholicism, to the, the Catholic experience and the history of the Catholic Church. And I guess then it raises this question for the current integralist movement, which has been, it seems like a combination of a handful of intellectuals, professors, those sorts, and then this this like very online, young men driven thing. Uh, but it's happening at a time when illiberalism has been rising. In, in a lot of places that aren't just within Catholic circles. And so it's a piece of, this. I guess. So with the current movement, then it's the one way to ask this is like, which came first, the illiberalism or the Catholicism? So are these people who are, they are illiberal, they don't like liberalism and they are like jury rigging an explanation for that on, in this case, a set of religious beliefs or were they Catholics who said, you know, in looking at it further, it turns out the Catholicism, and you'd say they're wrong about this, but right, like it turns out the Catholicism points to a liberalism. So there's a, there's a supply side of the story and a demand side of the story. So the suppliance of the ideology is a, a number of British intellectuals, particularly a, a really excellent uh, philosopher, philosophical historian, Thomas Pink, um, starts working on the, the Second Vatican Council's teaching on religious liberty. 2008 or so, he starts to advance an alternative uh, explanation that would allow for integralism in principle, but um, sees it as no longer being church policy. Um, so you you start to see this idea develop. It's taken over by uh, a priest, Father Edmund Walstein, who is well connected with a variety of like Ivy League Catholic graduates um, that include actually a number of people that uh, you you know, but I don't know if I can mention them not personally, but I've definitely heard of. Uh, and then they construct kind of this American online community of integralists and it kind of grows and uh, and changes, but the ideology is on offer. But early on, like 2012, 2013, there's a whole bunch of left-wing integralists. They're the ones you may have heard of. Some of the Bernie bro Catholics in particular were integralists. Um, but then Trump gets elected and the left and the right split over him. The left court of left integralism dies um, and it's all Trumpist stuff. And then they start to take their 
stage is like, look how intellectually we sophisticated we are relative to the other factions in the new right, you know, and then their their power starts to grow online. So there was the supply of the ideology that has this kind of weird British and French origin story. The demand is based on, in my view, is based on stuff that, you know, we talked about the last time we were uh, talking uh, on podcasts, which is, I think, falling trust and rising political polarization. So I think one of the things that happens when you grow up under those environments, the political psychology of it is like it just produces radicalization because you just don't care what people who disagree with you think. You don't really think they're good people. You just think they're moral monsters. And so, you know, you also come to have very apocalyptic views about them and you also exaggerate the threat of them. Um, and so, if, you know, you talk to young integralists and I have. Um, they think the left is the apocalypse today. I mean, they basically think that they're going to be completely written out of society. They're going to be completely low status um, and their children will be too. Um, and ultimately, actually, that the left will start to sort of attack the church directly, even though, as David French has pointed out, Christians have more religious liberty today as Christians than ever. Um, um, so, so you've got these Catholic, you know, feeling kind of excluded, feeling the other side's kind of the devil or so on, and sometimes literally. Um, and part of the reason for this, and this is just my hypothesis, is that many of the integralists have a really rich university education. In fact, I know one integralist who's an, uh, got his PhD in econ from George Mason. Um, and um, one of the things I think they find is that American Catholics were told for decades, like, look, if we just play ball with the American experiment, like we'll be accepted, we won't be excluded anymore. And that starts to like really look true, starting with JFK, but on and you know more and more and more uh, with time, um, particularly because the American Catholic, the American conservative elite is trying to make sense, you know, trying to be pro-Catholic, and you know, as the Protestant denominations split, you know, people join uh, the the Catholic Church, um, and so they kind of get accepted, like Catholics kind of get accepted, but then um, as like the Republican Party became more and more and more anti-abortion. And Catholics sorted, intellectuals sorted into the Republican Party more and more, because they weren't that way in the 20th century. Most of them were Democrats for a long time. Um, and then the LGBT movement. Once a Burgerfeld happens, you've got young Catholics growing up. They don't even remember the ruling. Same-sex marriage is just part of their life. And they think, oh, man, I, I go to Harvard now. Like, I can't even talk about my views because I'll be dismissed as a bigot. So they actually think like, look, I'm ex socially excluded or socially lower or beneath because they're in precisely that part of American society where that's true, even though it's not true in most of American society. So I think their experience is shaped by their experience in the university system. And so there's a demand for liberalism and there's a supply and they met. Is it true? This is my general sense is that a lot of the the very online in particular Integralists, but but you also see this with some of the big kind of intellectual names in um, in it. So, Sarab Mari, uh, Adrian Vuel are are converts. Like it seems like a lot of them are converts. And is that am I correct in seeing that as a as like a strong or dominant strain among that? And if so, what's, among the Americans, yes, yes. What's absolutely. going on there? Well, I mean, there are old jokes with um, with cradle Catholics, you know, about the converts and coming in and having all the zeal and being really annoying. And then, you know, after 10 years or 15 years or so, they calm down. The thing about the integralists is that, like, it's like this on steroids. And I'll speculate here, but I actually think there's evidence of this. Vermeule did an interview in First Things, the Christian periodical, about five years ago. And 
um, he heavily implies that uh, the Virgin Mary had an impact on his conversion. Um, and he doesn't elaborate. Um, but I actually think they're on a, they think they're on a divine mission. Um, it also explains why they've cut ties with so many former friends. Like I, I've interviewed so many people and talked to so many like elite philosophers and law professors. They're like, what's happened to my friend, old friend Adrian? Can I even talk to him anymore? Um, I mean, Vermeule is a professor at Harvard Law School, and he's the child of two Harvard professors. Um, so this is just the elite of the elite. Um, and, you know, he's just blocking law professors left and right. He's just totally destroying his social network. Um, why would anyone do that unless they really believe the stuff? Uh, and so I, I, I think for that and a number of other reasons, they engage in heavily, heavy uh, evangelization behind the scenes. Um, I know one Catholic philosopher that um, Vermeule was able to reach by PMs. I can't say who. Uh, a lot of shy integralists. Um, so they're completely, I think they're totally committed. I think they totally believe that they're um, on a mission to destroy liberalism. Um, so that's, I think, a lot of what, what's going on. They're not just converts. They're converts who think they're on a mission. Um, I know that's scary, and I know that it's, you know, maybe shocking. Um, but it's not that shocking. They're all kind of political sects that think they have a divine mission of some kind. So I just think they're like this. So, yes, it's the a zeal of the convert, but it's like double. <laughs> so I want to get to your critiques of of the the philosophical arguments, but – but just on that point, does that change the way that those of us who are liberals, um, whether we are non-Catholic liberals or Catholic liberals, we're arguing for liberalism and against, you know, you want ideally you want to persuade the illiberal integralists to give that up. Does that change that project if they are they see themselves as on a divine mission they are basically zealots as opposed to you know normy other philosophy professors who just are having arguments in journals yeah yeah i mean what i'm i'm you know trying to do um is i'm trying to show the people that haven't gone like full on zeal that the discussions that these the American integralists have had are just extremely intellectually shallow. I think one of their pervasive features is intellectual impatience. Um, they want the quick kill, the quick argument, the quick book, the quick treat, tweet. And I wrote the book in part, and I do let it get more analytic in some places, precisely because I want to show these young people we can have a much more serious and fulfilling, frankly, discussion about these things. And I think I can reach some of the Catholic law school students, but they're the ones who are the most likely to be on the mission. It's a lot easier to read. And, and the seminarians, I think I may be able to reach some of them. I can certainly reach the philosophy students. Um, I don't know how many, you know, I can, I can reach. And I'm not trying to dislodge their Catholicism at all. Um, and so the idea was to provide internal criticisms of uh, integralism and also, n also in a, in a very particular way, which is to criticize the ideal to show, look, even if you think that like we're really far from integralism or whatever, I want to show that the ideal is incorrect. That's that's. I don't want to say like, oh, it's good in theory, bad in practice. That's not enough for me. <laughs> I'm going to say it's bad in theory. Um, and so some people are going to say about the book, and maybe I had a friend who said, well, why don't you like talk more about like how tyrannical they would be in practice? And I'm like, I would rather talk about how tyrannical it would be as an ideal. Um, because I think if you can convince people, if you don't uh, go after the ideal, people will always say, oh, but it, you know, ideally it would work like this. Right. And we learned this just from debates with socialists. Right. And I just didn't want to make that mistake. So you go all non-ideal. You know, you don't have every page. Right. 
Um, so I want to show the ideals wrong. I'm going to show it's wrong even uh, in theory. So you take on the truth of Catholicism. You take on you know common dogmatic commitments. So all the arguments that I'm going to give um, are internal um, uh, to Catholicism. I, I, I sort of try to uh, walk through them. Um, sure. Yeah, I, mean, I think yeah. that's... Okay, so, so they follow a, a basic slogan. Um, you, integralism, you can't get there. You can't stay there. And it's unfair. Um, so I just, you know, that's a little tweet uh, about it. And I'll just, you know, bring out, you know, it's, it's again, I'm trying to just something that'll stick, you know. It's, it's the impatient version. Yes, yes. So here's the more patient version. Okay. So the first argument, you can't get there, is the transition argument. The idea is that the problem with the ideal is it isn't action guiding in the sense that it tells you anything about how to approach it. And that's because it's so far away from any society is we just have no idea how to get there. So I, here is where I do the thing that will be most controversial, which is that I, I put together Vermeule's strategic writings, and I show that they kind of fit together as a transition plan that they call integration from within, that they'll talk about as a plan publicly, integration from within. And um, the plan, and I think Vermeule is kind of a theorist and proponent of the administrative state, says, look, look, libertarians are wrong. You can't shrink the administrative state. It just doesn't work. They failed. It's big. We just got to take it over and use it for the right reasons. How do you do that? Okay, the first step is you create a community of a new elite. So Dean talks about this, replace the elite. You put them in positions of power, the administrative state and the judiciary in particular. Not never going to win an election, so don't even fool with that. Um, and then they predict that liberalism will fall. They're 100% confident it will fall. And then, you know, you got the people in power. So in the same way, like the Soviet Union collapses, but it leaves the major bureaucracies. Liberalism, they think, will collapse and it will leave open the major bureaucracies for colonization, essentially. Um, now... This this is crazy. Like, like like this is like this is wild stuff. Um, and the fact that someone with the social science chops um, that that Vermeule has is like at this level. Um, it's I think very illuminating. Which is that to go through any of these steps is just completely wild. And even if you were to take over the state, you've got to get the church on board. There's 5,600 Catholic bishops and none of them are integralists. So you have to like convert. There's a global church, right? You've got to convert like a majority of them to elect an integralist pope. You've got to con convince an integralist pope to be have integralist policy. You have to take over a modern nation state with all its complexity and diversity and pluralism. And then you've got to get them integrated, <laughs> You've got to get them to in the integration relation. So what I say in the book is that Vermeule has to solve three of the greatest coordination problems in the history of the human race. Like that's how unlikely this thing is. So most people get that. So I have two additional points to make when I establish that point. One is you could probably get to integralism by taking over a state if you're willing to violate Catholic moral teaching left, right, and center, right? You have to break a couple of eggs and that's just going to violate Catholic doctrine. So it's not strictly that integralism, you can't transition to it, but you can't transition to it in a Catholic, res respectably Catholic way. Okay. Then I draw a general lesson from this, which is that, look, even the best theorist of these things, even the person that understands the workings of the state, the absolute best, has a plan that is com that is vanishingly improbable, like vanishingly improbable. And that suggests a weakness in the ideal, which is the ideal doesn't tell its practitioners how to approach it. So that's argument number one. The ideal well, me, isn't action guiding. So that's a transition argument. Okay. Let me, okay. So we, let me yeah. let me ask up a question about that. Uh, when they say they they have this assumption that liberalism will collapse, what do they mean by that? Like, what does that look like to them that liberalism has collapsed? 
So I think they have in mind liberals as a group of, you know, Vermeule points out, they're not really decadent. They're that liberals are ascetic fanatics. Um, and so basically it's kind of like when the Bolsheviks take over Russia, right? Like it's like you, you take and build bureaucracies and then there are the ideologues that suffuse those bureaucracies, but those bureaucracies might exist or survive for other reasons. So Vermeule says like the military, the administrative state, it would survive the death of liberalism. It's the liberals who lose power because they lose legitimacy in the populace. And I think in many cases, they are thinking about like the fall of communism and the way that the communists got cleared out. And then you brought in the non-communists because they were in the right place or some of them converted, you know, to non-communism or whatever, once they saw the writing on the wall. Right. So that's what they're thinking. Now, their story about why liberalism falls is really strange. Um, but Vermeule has a, 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 a sizable article. It's not, it's not that long. Um, that tries to tell the following story. So, so your listeners will know maybe a little bit about why Marx thought capitalism would fall. One of the things that happens, though, is the capitalist class faces a, a, a falling rate of return to profit. And so they become more and more and more desperate and engage in more and more exploitation as they find lower and lower profits. And that ultimately accelerates the end of things, um, along with some other factors. So Vermeule has a, a parallel theory about liberals. So all like the capitalist only cares about profit. The liberal only cares about liberation. So they start off with like understandable liber end of slavery or whatever women's suffrage. And then they get to the trans issue and then, you know, they're totally crazy on that or whatever. And they're just going to keep going. They're never going to stop. They're ascetic fanatics. But eventually the population will just be exhausted uh, by being told that they're bigots who aren't on board with the next thing. So eventually they're just going to stop tolerating it. The rate of return to liberation will fall and the, the fanatical liberals will discredit themselves and then the right people have to be in place to move in. Now, there's there's a thousand problems with this, <laughs> but that's that's the article. That's what it that's what it, it describes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it always part of this is I always like these these warnings, these dire warnings about if we have this sort of liberalization, society will collapse. So if we let if we let gays marry, the family will be destroyed. If we let um, interracial marriage, it will destroy. We have had thousands of years of liberalizing society and and the dire warnings. So it's yeah. So I guess I am skeptical that the next thing will be the thing that causes people to give up on social liberalization. Um, and it it gets to so I guess part of the reason I asked is it seems like for a lot of what we might call like trad people, um, they view they define civilizational decline simply as civilization no longer conforming to their particular values. So in the same way that like I define the decline of music as the kids are no longer listening to the stuff I listened to in high school. But that's not actually an argument that music has declined. It's an argument that tastes have shifted. Is that really like that sounds like what you're describing is is they basically so so I mean it really depends on this like super weird uh, theory about ideological dynamics so I, I talk about this in the chapter it's like there's one ideological force liberalism it has its own internal logic and you don't have to theorize any of the opposition or the other forces except most people on on board um, and Marxism did the same. I mean, they thought ultimately all these other ideologies were, a, you know, sort of a manifestation of the superstructure of a class oppression. So the socialists take over. It's inevitable. All this other stuff will go away. Um, they haven't made the argument that liberalism and so like mainline conservatism are, are just superstructure stuff that will go away. Um, 
the ultimate sort of competitor ideologies, Vermeule doesn't really theorize how how the inter how the competition of ideologies works. It's just there's one big one. There's right and left wings of it, and it's omnipotent, um, and it will die of its own sort of situation. This is just false. I mean, you know, it, there's ideological diversity is pretty natural. You know, we've talked about it in the past. I think you can kind of group them in the West in three kind of groups, conservatism, socialism, liberalism, and then there are lots of kind of hybrids in between them. So, And the left and right liberalism are pretty different, and they've competed against each other in a variety of respects. Um, and so, you know, any serious analysis about how to, to have civilizational level change um, you know, you, you, you've got to have a story about the competitor dynamics, the competitor ideologies. Uh, you look at, you know, cases of civilizational change in you know, Ottoman conquest of the Byzantine empire, for instance, or what was left of it. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that are done. A lot of it's just straight up military defeat, um, or the collapse of the military. Uh, and the integrals haven't theorized this at all. Um, but I actually think we're seeing with the military, actually, the LGBT values taking really deep hold. And you see integralists and stuff being like, oh, we're going to lose a war or whatever, when that's just false. Like most of this is like, these are pretty geeky kids that know how to send a missile out and, you know, they know how to innovate and make a better weapon, you know, like it, we're going to be strong for a while. Like you, <laughs> they don't need to be six foot four and like covered in muscle. Right. I mean, it's just silly. Like we can have like a totally LGBT friendly military and they're not going to just be like you know what, we're just kind of do whatever the dominant ideology is. I also talk about this in the book. There's a kind of model of the politics of what's called idiocracy or the rule of an ideology and tries to map out like well, what was similar between what the communists did and the fascists did and like the, the, you know, the Iranian sort of Muslims did. What was similar? Well, it's pretty fascinating. They all have their own troops. The SS, brown shirts, Mujahideen to scare the other branches of the military into submission. And those troops have to be completely ideologically brainwashed and devoted, like totally brainwashed and devoted. That's the only way it happens. That's the only way a major ideology actually takes over. And then, you know, the, the book talks a lot about how it kind of lasts a generation, but then nobody cares anymore because people just can't live like that. Um, and so you get all this corruption and internal decay, and it just kind of ultimately leads uh, uh, to collapse. So, I mean, if Nazis hadn't been defeated, you know, probably going to be around you know, 30 years before nobody cares anymore. Not that that isn't horrible. The point is actual civilizational level or ideological level change is a big deal. And there's a lot of bloodshed. Um, and you need very specific means that are completely incompatible with Catholic teaching. So you could, you can get to integralism, but you, not in a Catholic way. They also, there's this other complication that's huge, which is that it isn't just like communism in one country right? You've got to get the Vatican on board and they're half a world away. And at any time the Pope could say, we don't like this. We're condemning it. They did it with the last major integralist movement, the Axiom Francais in France, almost a hundred years ago. Um, Pope, uh, Pope Pius XI condemned Axiom Francais. Um, and that just dealt it a body blow and ultimately died. The current Pope thinks integralism is a plague. I mean, he said that privately. Um, so, you know, they've got all this problem, which is not just taking over the state, but you've got this whole mo in, in independent monitoring system that is becoming more progressive, by the way. I mean, think about it. All those bishops appointed by Pope John Paul II and Benedict, they voted for Francis. Most of them, right? Um, you know, I mean, 
Francis appointed so many bishops. I mean, they're just they just think, oh, this is just fascism. Like we're not going to do anything with this. So the point is to show that the ideal is so far away. The only way to get to it, even to conceive of getting to it, is is oppression and bloodshed that every Catholic must reject. Uh, and that argument is enough to get, I think, a lot of conservatives away from it because they're maybe skeptical of the enterprise of ideal theory, right? Um, and so, so that may be enough for some people. I think, I think, I think it may very well be. But there's a response, which is that, well, we may not know how to get to integralism, but it's still the best. It's still the best. And so yeah, I, I was thinking about that, that in the context of like my anarchist friends who are under no illusions that we're going to instantiate anarchism, but it is still a moral imperative yes, that we aim that's at. That's right. That's right. And and I mean, in libertarianism, it, it has an interesting structure where the thought is like, look, there are certain kinds of coercion that are always wrong. If there was a good theory of political authority, it would legitimize it, but there is no such good theory. And so there's just like a deontological moral fact, which is that states should go away. Right. But Catholicism is a good bit different in terms of being a good centered through teleological theory um, and also um, and and it, having a theory of political authority like it, the grounds for having an ideal theory are really different. For instance, you have to reconcile with original sin, for instance, like you, you, you just can't expect too much of an ideal period. Um, and so th there are disadvantages to Catholic ideal theory that libertarian ideal theory doesn't usually face. Um, one of those is the problem of stability. So and this goes into the stability argument. So suppose we establish integralism um, and we have a society that's not just coercively Catholic. It respects the liberties of the unbaptized. And I say, let's grant that they're a minority just for the sake of argument, um, protects their religious freedom. But once you're baptized, you know, you're, you're under the canonical legal system. You can be tried for ecclesiastical crimes. Maybe if you don't agree with the Catholic Church anymore, you're not as culpable or what have you, maybe. Um, so we're trying to imagine an integral society, you know, under what Rawls would call favorable conditions. Okay. So most people agree. Most of the rulers are integralist. Integralism isn't dogma. And so we can't assume everyone agrees because that's a matter on which there can be reasonable dissent. Um, and so the, the church would use kind of certain kinds of coercion, direct the state to use certain kinds of coercion to suppress communications, let's say. And then, of course, there's the effect, you know, you'll think this is magic, but I mean grace, right? So the, the church has graced the state, and that means that they're healed some so they can better follow, know the natural law and follow it. So ultimately, and this is fascinating, integrals are opposed to a modus vivendi. They don't want to rule based on power. That's what liberalism does in their view, but lies about it. They want social stability to depend on like the, the virtue of the public. It's actually kind of like Confucianism in this regard. Um, it's, it's very, very focused on like the cultivation of internal character. Stability is supposed to flow from that. Um, and I think there's just a whole host of, of reasons to think that that, that system is going to unravel of its own logic. I'll just give you one of my arguments, um, which is that um, integralism makes baptism expensive because once you're baptized, you come under all these legal liabilities. Right now, if you baptize your child, they could be tried for apostasy or heresy when they're adults. If you don't baptize your child, you're scot-free. If you baptize your child in secret and the church doesn't have a mass surveillance state, you're in pretty good shape. Um, and so the idea that, you know, historically with integralism, you, know, you have all these peasants, they can't read. They're probably not even Catholic because they don't know what they believe, right? They, they've, they've had no education. You know, there's no mass communications. The numbers of people are very small. Um, so you're coordinating really a few thousand elites. That's, that's, that's your situation. Um, 
But there's so many sources of diversity that's not Rawlsian reasonable pluralism. I don't talk about Rawls in the book. Nothing about reasonable pluralism. I just say there's natural pluralism. First of all, there's there's just factors that lead us to disagree that aren't fixed by dogma, so they're not part of revelation. Um, and also there's unnatural pluralism, just the fact that sin confuses people and leads to its own kinds of, of disagreement. So there's a kind of similarity with the Rawlsian destabilization story, but it's not about it's not about reasonable pluralism. Um, it's about only factors of sources of pluralism that Catholics would acknowledge. Um, and so the idea here is, you know, look, you know, people say, look, integralism isn't dogma, but the integralist rulers are like make adding all these unnecessary, you know, legal restrictions. Um, why don't I defect in some way or avoid it or push for non-integralist leaders, depending on whether you have a democracy or a monarchy or not? Um, just the because of the the disincentives to have the integralist regime um, in terms of the penalties, the additional set of penalties over the civil code that come from the canonical code, that it's going to be a really serious issue because you're going to want to have practices that get around the costs but still get you the benefits. Um, so you know, and because the benefit, the cost can be so severe. But then, if the regime commits to, oh no, we're only going to use modest punishments, then there's just way more defection. Right. So it's just really, really hard to avoid a pluralistic kind of collapse. And what I say in the book is like, look, the stability argument predicts that maybe Catholic regimes don't collapse, but integralist regimes will become like soft establishmentarian regimes like France or Ireland or what have you. Um, and in fact, that's what happened. Every integralist regime or quasi-integralist regime moved in this direction. Every last one that didn't like become Protestant or communist or something. So internal to the ideal is the seize of its own destruction. So that's a stability argument. Sure. Um, but if, but you could, one could wave a magic wand and assume away the work of all these, the workability problems of, we probably can't get this into place in the first place. And even if we could, it would collapse or soften. It wouldn't maintain itself. But if we could wave those away, are there still problems with this from a, I guess, from a doctrinal Yes. Yeah. From a, from a moral perspective, yes. So it's important, though, the stability argument is partly part of dogma because there are teachings about natural law and it being natural to us and about its ability to lead, lead us to act. Um, and so that actually, the destability is a serious problem from within Catholic social thought. That aside, let's talk about the pure moral problems. So there's two, there's kind of two ways to go at it from a perspective of equality that Catholics accept. Okay, so one is this very non-ideal argument that if you have an integralist regime, religious minorities will be oppressed, right? That's just true. Like, it's just manifestly true. Okay, everyone knows that is a problem. Okay, so I just decided, you know, there are other people who've made that argument. I'm going to focus on the ideal. So what does the ideal require? And this is super interesting. According to the integralist ideal, the unbaptized have very broad religious liberty. They have freedom of belief. They have freedom of worship. They have freedom of education, freedom of seminaries, freedom to disseminate their books. Um, there's all kinds of religious freedoms that the unbaptized get. This is how the integralists reinterpret Dignitatis Humanae, which is the Catholic Church saying, look, we're on board with religious freedom, 1965 or so. Um, and so they just say, no, actually, it only applies to your right of religious freedom against the state. But and not the church, but the church could reauthorize the state, grant the church, grant the state its own power. So you could have integralism in the future, but it only, but the coercion only applies to the baptized. 
So it's dogma that you have to protect the religious liberties of the baptized. So I grant, for the sake of argument, in the ideal, religious minorities are protected. In practice, that is not what happened, and it's not what would happen. I know that. So now here's something super interesting that comes up. You can't coerce the baptized on religious grounds at all for any reason. This is hard, it's, you know, complete moral prohibition. But you can coerce the baptized. The difference between whether religious coercion is unjust or just is one thing, whether they have a valid baptism or not. So then I say, let's grant everything the Catholic Church dogmatically teaches about baptism. No element of it can explain why religious coercion goes from unjust, utterly, to just. Why is it the case that someone unbaptized who's Jewish has a total right of religious freedom, but if they were baptized as an infant against the will of their parents in an emergency situation, that they would it would be totally just to coerce them? Never been Catholic, not raised Catholic at all. And I just say, look, there's just no way to square that that circle. Baptism does not serve as a moral transformer in that way. Okay. And so what ends up happening, and this is the interesting thing in the ideal, because in, in, in the non-ideal situation, it's those outside the church that are going to be treated worse. But in the ideal, it's the people inside the church that are treated worse because they're subject to all this coercion merely in virtue of, say, an infant baptism. So it's unjust to people on the inside. So I've already had friends say, well, why don't you talk about like the oppression of people on the outside? I'm like, because again, there's, there is oppression. There's injustice, even in the ideal case. So there's an intrinsic incoherence that they have to resolve. Why does baptism change religious coercion from unjust, that's dogma, to just, which the integralists think is probably dogma. And there's nothing in their writings that explains this. There is a passage in Aquinas about it that only makes sense if it's not infants. Because he talks about, well, look, I mean, baptism involves a vow. So if you agree, like, yeah, you can't force someone into a contract, but you can force them to keep it, right? But if you only apply, if that logic only applies to adults. And then as soon as it does, everyone can choose whether to become Catholic or not in an integral state, and they won't. <laughs> because, good grief, there may be some pro-incentives, but, you know, they could become Eastern Orthodox and get the Eucharist. So there's all these alternatives. So in any case, that's the central, that's one of the central injustices. I have other arguments. But the problem is any other egalitarian doctrines, they're just going to say beg the question because they're they're liberal ideas. So I once had this argument, which is like, look, we already think equality applies to worldviews, like at very least to within Christians or between Jews and Christians. Right. And if we should treat different views, you know, even true and false views equally, um, then, you know, integralism is false because it doesn't do that. It's called the fairness argument against integralism. I didn't put it in the book because a lot of Catholics were like, they would never accept the idea that equality applies to worldviews. It does. It obviously does. And that's a good argument. And I wrote it up. It's an article. You can read it. But it begs the question against the integrals. The integrals would never accept the main premise. So I think many of the common arguments against integralism, they have good responses to or responses that's maybe satisfy them, even if it doesn't really satisfy much of anyone else. So I wanted new arguments that granted them as much as possible and then still show the problem. So those are the issues. Transition, stability, justice. You can't get there. You can't stay there. It's unfair, right? I know it's cheese, but it, it, it helps. <laughs> um, yeah.
So it's just it's very it's very important to understand that these folks are not conservatives traditionally. They are for a radical ideal theory. They are much more accurately described as counter-revolutionaries. They're favoring Maestra over Burke, Carl Schmitt over Hayek. I mean, this is, we're going to take the institutions established by liberalism and socialism, and we're going to turn them to our own ends. This is the great danger of the American integrals because they're, they're bringing the ideas of Viktor Orban into the Republican party. They're one of the ones who are most responsible for it. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you like the show and want to support it, head to reimaginingliberty.com to learn more. You'll get early access to all my essays, as well as be able to join the Reimagining Liberty Discord community and book club. That's reimaginingliberty.com, or look for the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon.